Good morning. If you don't know me, uh, my name's Rick. I'm married to Cheryl. We have two children. And uh, I was thinking about this, uh, this the other day. I still kind of feel like a newbie, but I've been in Grace Church for 11 years. So I'm not a newbie, but sometimes feels like it. It's been just the best time, so it's flown by. Um, today, we're going to be continuing our series in Radical Welcome. Um, so far, we've explored how we can welcome one another in the church, particularly um, if you're different to, to someone else, you know, maybe a different race, different nationality, different age, different life stage. But uh, it's so important right at the beginning to remember, as JP preached right at the beginning of the series, the church isn't just a social club. It's not just a place where we gather different types of people because it looks good. It's not a religious congregation. It is the dynamic family of God. We welcome is one of our key values as a church, and it's because we have been radically welcomed by him. The welcome of Jesus Christ is unsurpassed, and we echo that. In Jesus, the indifferent are invited. The lonely are loved. The homeless are home. As Jesus spread his arms in crucifixion, he flung them wide in welcome. And the radical welcome of the resurrected Jesus is right at the core of today's topic, which is welcoming the city. Or, to put it another way, as Ali Rez has already led us, telling other people outside of the church about Jesus and the eternal welcome he offers. It's what the Bible calls evangelism, which literally means the act of bringing good news. And while when I say evangelism, that might excite you, or it might scare you, I think we can all agree that if you know the radical welcome of Jesus, you know that it is such good news that, of course, we want to welcome our city, our friends, our colleagues and neighbors into this same welcome. Amen? If you have a Bible, please turn with me to uh, the book of Acts, chapter 18. And we're going to be reading verses 1 to 11. And... Uh, this is written by a guy called Luke. He was a doctor, and he wrote the Gospel of Luke, and this is kind of its sequel. And I love the, the line in that song, the church of Christ was born and the spirit lit the flame, and, and uh, Acts is all about that. So, Acts 18, first one. After this, Paul, who's one of uh, the apostles of Jesus, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, and that's Emperor Claudius of the Roman Empire, um, Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And Paul went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. 
And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. The city of Corinth is an interesting place. Um, if you can imagine in your mind uh, the country Greece, um, it's kind of in two parts, uh, and there's a little strip of land that runs between the two of them. Uh, that is where Corinth is. And uh, it made it then a real sort of hub for traveling trade. It's a bit like, say the M1 doesn't exist, maybe a happier time, and we just have the A1, and there's one service station on it. Everyone would go there. And it was like that with Corinth. It also had the Mediterranean to one side and the Aegean Sea on the other. So real you know, uh, potential that the Romans saw uh, for commercial gain. And they kind of built this city from ground up to be a commercial city. Which in some ways means it's the first century version of Milton Keynes. However, unlike Milton Keynes, it had grown proud. I don't think anyone's proud of Milton Keynes. But in Corinth, status and success were king. The Corinthians, they'd have loved social media. They'd have loved getting their follow and like numbers up, you know? It was also a city famous for promiscuity. So much so that to do the Corinthian meant to practice sexual immorality. A Corinthian girl was a derogatory term. And it's into this context that the Apostle Paul comes. And it's easy to read the great exploits of Paul in Acts and think he's some you know, superhuman, super evangelist, church planting extraordinaire, Schwarzenegger mixed with Billy Graham. <laughs> Hideous. Um, <laughs> but in reality, he was short. All reports of his looks, his, his features are not flattering. By his own admission, he was not a good public speaker. He was an unimpressive man, made to look all the more unimpressive when reflected in the eyes of this city obsessed with sex and social standing. And in my mind, it's a bit like throwing Dobby the house elf into an episode of Love Island and hoping he'll win people to Jesus. <laughs> no wonder. We read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and he says, I, I came to you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. I don't blame him. But you know, when I, when I think about welcoming our city, telling other people about Jesus, I, I identify with that. Today, though, <laughs> despite his unimpressiveness, we'll explore three ways in which Paul is an evangelistic example to us. First, Paul was a man of purpose. The first time we meet Paul, uh, he's not even a Christian. In fact, quite the opposite. He was a Jew who didn't believe in Jesus and instead imprisoned and assisted in the murder of those who did. Until one day, you can read for yourself in chapter 9, it says, while he was still breathing threats 
and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he encountered the risen Jesus and his life was totally turned around. Because that day, Paul discovered the mercy of Jesus. He understood that forgiveness was total. You see, when Jesus met him that day, he said to Paul, why are you persecuting me? By attacking the church, the body of Christ, Paul was persecuting Jesus, defying God himself. Which is our story too. I don't think many of us have sought violence against his followers, but we have all defied God, whether through disinterest, disobedience, or disbelief. We have all opposed God. The Bible calls this rejection of God's sin. And Paul, who was a Jewish scholar, would have immediately understood there was punishment due for what he'd done, for his denial of Jesus, for his sin. He himself would write later a letter to the Romans saying that the wages of sin is death. He knew this. But what he hadn't known before, what he learned that day, was that for all who believe in Jesus, those wages of death, the payment we are due for our sin, was bestowed upon Jesus as he died on the cross. And we receive freedom and eternal life. Paul's life was totally changed. He had received the radical welcome of the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ, and now his life's purpose was to tell others. And he knew that if a murderous zealot like himself could know forgiveness and reconciliation with God, there was no sin too great to keep anyone from knowing Jesus. The persecutor became the propagator of Jesus' radical welcome. And do you know that's our purpose too? Our vision as a church is to be a disciple-making community. That's why we welcome the city, so that others too can know God for themselves, find freedom in Jesus, and discover their own God-given purpose to make a difference in the world. As a church, we have corporate purpose and individual purpose. Paul Paul was called to go to different cities and proclaim the welcome of Jesus. Some of you have that calling too. But for most of us, God has purpose right here. I can look across the room and see some called to the education sector, others to to big business. Some are parents called to disciple the next generation. What a noble purpose that is. Some, a specific people group. Some, a specific geographical area. Some, the political arena. Some, you just want to see your friends and family follow Jesus. Well, amen to that. Well, this is my encouragement to you this morning. Verse 9 and 10. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. For he is with you. And no one will attack you or harm you 
For he has many in this city who are his people. If you know your purpose, if you've been called like Paul to follow him and he's put something on your heart, keep going. There's more. There's more that he's called you to. And secondly then, we see that Paul was a man of persistence. Because perhaps you're familiar with the challenge of sharing your faith. You know, you, you hold it so dear in your heart and then you go and tell someone it just won't come out of your mouth. And maybe you do. Maybe you do manage to blurt something out about the, the radical welcome of Jesus and, you know, all that he offers. And your friends just aren't interested. I've been there. And maybe once you were all up for telling people about Jesus, his passion for them that took him to the cross and his glorious resurrection that offers eternal life. But now... If you're honest, you're a little gun-shy. Well, encouragingly, at the beginning of this story, Paul's in a similar state. Because before uh, this chapter starts, he's, uh, he's followed God. Um, God has called him to Macedonia, which is in the north of Greece, to go and tell people about Jesus. And it starts off fairly well. He goes to a city called Philippi, um, and aside from spending a night in jail, you know, it goes well. People start believing. A church is founded. And boy, did this, he and his team move on to the next big city, Thessalonica. And there they, they preach the gospel for three Sabbaths. Um, Paul's uh, normal strategy was to, to go to the synagogues where, where Jews met on their holy day and tell them, you know that Christ you've been waiting for? It's Jesus. Good news. So he, he did this for three weeks. Just three weeks, because after that, a mob rose up in Thessalonica and chased them out of town. They then go on to Berea, the next big city. They get settled, set up camp, you know, let's start telling people about, oh no, here come the Thessalonians, we better leg it. And they don't get to stay there either. Paul actually leaves his team behind, and he goes alone to Athens, that great center of philosophy and thought. And there, a handful are at least cognitively curious about the concept of a God who would come in the form of man. But overall, his success is muted. Disappointed, he comes to Corinth. So what does he do? How does he persist? Well, the first thing he does, it goes and gets together with Aquila and Priscilla. So he's not alone anymore. This is how we persist, the church. God has given us one another. We need one another to prophesy over each other, to speak God's word into us, to encourage one another, to celebrate with one another. Who is encouraged listening to Ali Reza? That's what we need. It makes me, I could do something like that. Not quite like that, he's a brilliant, brilliant man. I don't hope to imitate him. We need each other. It's notable that evangelistic success came after the arrival of Timothy and Silas from Macedonia. Paul had his team back. But more than that, they brought encouraging news. A church has started in Thessalonica. They only preached there three weeks. It's so incredible when other people come and tell us what God is doing in other places... Because it raises our faith when Duncan and Steve come from Manchester and Birmingham and tell us about churches that previously did not exist and now exist, it raises my faith for what God is doing in this country and what he can do in Nottingham. 
What a reminder, too, of our responsibility as we preach the gospel. Paul had three weeks to proclaim Jesus. Three weeks. Not even enough to run an alpha course. I'm, t- I'm serious. I looked into it. You, you have to do the first four, otherwise you're not allowed to call it alpha. It's against the branding. <laughs> I don't know how he converted them then. It's amazing. <laughs> in that time, in that time, he was able to proclaim Jesus and the Holy Spirit broke in and brought his people to faith in an eternal relationship with himself. And this is a, this is a really good principle for us too to proclaim the gospel and move on. Which I'm actually going to rebrand because that might give the impression that I say, hey, just go and tell someone about Jesus and then move to another city. That's a, that's a little extreme. I'm going to rebrand this, and you'll see why in just a moment. The broadcast and brush. It's, I think it, it should come with a dance move. So do this with me. The broadcast and brush. Come on. The broadcast and brush. Very good. I've noticed in recent times we've, we've had an upswing in named dances. I thought we left this in the 70s, you know, the, the Watusi and the twist and the uh, mashed potato. But now we've got the floss and the dab. The floss, by the way, has nothing to do with, with the brush. Um, that's, a, that's something else. Um, <laughs> so we see Paul doing the, uh, the broadcast and the brush in verse 6. It says, because the, the Jews opposed and reviled him. And he, he does his own dance move, the bat. He shakes his robes. The bat, the brush, the bat, the broadcast. No? Okay, fine. My career in disco is gone. Um, he, he shakes out his garments. When Luke wrote his gospel, he tells a similar uh, symbolic act. Verses, uh, chapters 9 and 10, where Jesus sends out his disciples and tell people, tell people about me. But he says, if they're not interested though, what you do, you take off your shoe and you brush the dust off. You broadcast and you brush. And you think, Why? Well, by that act, you symbolize, I'm not going to let this affect me. This place, the very dust from this place, has no pain for me. I brush it off. And this is our mandate too. Because we too are sent out in the power and authority of Jesus to tell others about him. When we do, he will go with us. That's his promise to us. And so, if you've shared, your, if you've shared the gospel with a friend and they've shot you down, well done. Well done. But do not let that rejection cling to you. Like the dust on your feet or on your clothes, shake it off. It had nothing to do with you in the first place. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, look, if they hated you, it's because they hated me first. That's a strong word. If they reject you, it's because they're rejecting me. It's got nothing to do with you. Broadcast and brush. (laughs) 
Paul shook the very brick dust of the synagogue off his clothes and said, I've done my best. I've proclaimed Jesus, but you haven't received him. Today, if you have held on to bitterness from evangelistic rejection, let it go. If you fear sharing the gospel with friends because you've been ridiculed or ignored in the past, let it go. Forgive those who've wronged you and repent of your anger towards them. Let it go. Broadcast and brush. The Holy Spirit will do the rest. And lastly, Paul was persistent because he took God at his word when he said, I have many in this city who are my people. Which should also help us stop thinking of evangelism as something awkward we do to try and coerce people to come into our little club. No, there are people in Nottingham right now who God said are my people. We just have to go and find out who they are. This is God's work. This is why we can broadcast and brush, because it's all about what he's doing. But if our purpose is to be a disciple-making community, and it is, well, in the end, it comes down to people, persons in ones and twos. See, I can get caught up, you know, talking about, you know, I want to see the church grow and the kingdom of God advance, but really what it means is individuals becoming Christians. Paul was a man of purpose, he was persistent, but ultimately that meant he was about people. And actually, as we go on, we see he had success. It's fascinating that he has just said, you know, Jews, I'm done with you, and then the first person who's a convert that's listed is a Jew. So he didn't leave them alone. You tell your friends about Jesus, don't just give up on them. But I'd hate to be, I'd hate to be a, um, you know, part of the welcome team uh, at the synagogue, you know, at that, that, that time. You know, ah, oh, shalom, good morning, Christmas, good morning, are you coming in? No, you're going next door. They set up camp next door. What a slap in the face. <laughs> Why are you going? Christmas, Christmas, come back. Oh my goodness, he believes in Jesus. We haven't read it later on. Sosthenes, another um, uh, synagogue leader, also believes in Jesus. He may even have been Christmas's replacement. It's going very badly. Shalom, good morning, soft. Don't go in there. Don't be with the Christians. Hard time for the Jews at this point. (laughs) The early church was literally welcoming the city, which inspires me because God has positioned us literally next door to the city. And how wonderful would it be if on a Sunday we saw people diverted from their normal path of worship into the church, from going to the gym, the shops, the pub, the office, these temples of false religion of our day. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Here's a kicker. Tearfund did some recent research recently, Christian charity, and discovered this. 70% of British people have no intention of attending a church service at any point in the future. Which means if you lined up 10 of your friends, only three would be inclined to come 
to church if you invited them. But I believe that God has many more people in this city. Amen? And the 30% are worth it. So invite your friends. You know, we're going to run at least two Alpha courses this year. Invite your friends. We are making Christmas, Easter, dedications, baptisms, the best gospel-focused meetings they can be. Invite your friends. We work so hard to make this environment as welcome as it can be. So invite the 30%. They're worth it. Who's ever heard of Albert McMakin? Someone who's done my Alpha training, surely. Now, he's an ordinary bloke, fairly unimpressive. Sounds familiar. Not much of an evangelist, but he loved Jesus. And he invited a friend along to church. His friend, who was known as Billy Graham, became convinced of Christ and went on to introduce many, many more people to Jesus, including my own father-in-law. I thank God for our book, McMakin, and his faith to invite people. But if we're to make any headway with the 70%, we need to be like Paul, a man of the people, a woman of the people. John Stott, in his uh, commentary on this passage, he says this, talking about cities and urbanization. Christians need to move into the cities and experience the pains and pressures of living there in order to win city dwellers for Christ. Commuter Christianity, living in salubrious suburbia and commuting to an urban church is no substitute for incarnational involvement. We need to know what makes people tick. We need to know what is going on in their lives and where they need Jesus because they do, because we all do. See, as Paul moves into the city, um, verses 1 to 4, what does he do? He goes to work with Aquila and Priscilla. The eagle-eyed among you will have uh, recognized these names from JP's preach because these guys actually go on to be some of Paul's um, church-planting best people. They're thanked at the end of Romans and Corinthians because Paul had a job not just as the funds for, but the means of making disciples. Not just the funds for, but the means of making disciples. Now, we don't know when these guys became Christians, whether it was before or after they met Paul. It kind of doesn't matter because discipleship, helping uh, helping people know God, find freedom, make a difference, discover purpose, that happens before and after conversion. Paul was discipling them. And it's interesting, there was a whole proud, promiscuous city to reach, and Paul started with those most like himself. Your job, your school, your home is the very sphere that God has called you to evangelize. 70% of your colleagues, your classmates, your kids, won't come to church to hear about the radical welcome that Jesus offers. So God has sent you. You, you who best knows what gospel your friends need to hear. See, evangelism means the bringing of good news. 
the gospel, when I say that, that literally means good news. But I think the gospel is probably bigger than we think. The good news is gooder than we know. It's more than just forgiveness from sin. Take my friend Charlie. Couldn't care less about Christ. Not a fig for forgiveness. But community was the key. Uh, he and I were at theatre school together, and um, I moved here, not knowing anyone. He sort of stayed nearer to his family. And uh, he was often incredibly lonely. But he'd come here and say, you've got a great community. Because so quickly, Grace Church was my home. And I was like, yeah, of course, it, it's the church. Forget what a witness this it, it is. He said, you've got great friends. I told him recently about mine and Cheryl's uh, plan to church plant in Newcastle. And he said, why? It's a fair question. But he said, why? Why would you leave that great community you have in Nottingham? I said, Charlie, because I want that kind of community in Newcastle for other people to come to. He totally got it. Community was the key that then opened a really great gospel chat. The gospel is bigger than you think. I really don't have time to list all the different ways, but I'm going to give you a few. I've recently started going back to the gym. Started. <laughs> don't, don't pick me up on it yet. And, oh, man, I am just overwhelmed by the music that gets pumped into people's brains at that place. There's one song. I won't sing it to you because it'll be in your head as much as it's in mine. The lyrics are, if you're ever in town, let me break it down. Our society is desperate for relationship. So much so that one night stands, Tinder, these imitations of intimacy are cultural norms. Jesus offers 24-7 love and relationship unparalleled by any physical or emotional connection. And if you don't know Jesus, you can receive this love in an instant. You can have it today. The gospel offers influence. We've just got a new prime minister. I don't know how you feel about that. It's a little bit irrelevant because none of us are going to influence him day to day. The opposite is true in the government of God. The king elects you to have daily influence with Jesus, the prince of peace on whose shoulder shall the government of the world forever be. Isn't that amazing? The gospel impacts families. There's a contractor comes here semi-regularly. We know each other a little bit. I can talk about each other's lives. And he's got this family member who uh, has betrayed him again and again and again. And he says, I know what you'd say, Rick. Just forgive him, right? I said, no. Knocked him for six. I said, no. Forgiveness is hard. It's a supernatural act. You need the power of Jesus to forgive those who've hurt you the most. As we are reconciled to Christ, so we are reconciled to each other. The gospel answers the questions that science throws up. Not how, but why things are, made, things are the way they are. The gospel makes the most sense of suffering and gives us hope that it will end. The gospel gives us a reason to live beyond just our next holiday. 
The gospel teaches us about and empowers us for commitment. The gospel helps us know right from wrong in a post-truth era. And yes, by the blood of Jesus, our sins are forgiven. We have been saved from hell. I, th- I think we live today hoodwinked by humanism. You know, the, the belief that says we're innately good. There isn't really heaven and hell. I read an article in The Guardian that said, is there a God? Probably not. If there is, do I think I'll be punished eternally? Less likely. It's just not true. Paul went to the people to meet their needs, to find out what gospel they needed to hear. Because Jesus really is the answer to everything. Reaching a whole city You drive through Nottingham on a Saturday night or in town, and I'm just overwhelmed by how much people need Jesus. And how do I start? Reaching a whole city comes down to ones and twos. But it takes time. The great reformer uh, John Calvin, commenting on on, uh, verse 4, he describes Paul's act of persuading the Jews and Greeks. He, He says this word persuade means to introduce little by little. Which I find encouraging because I think few, if any, people go from you know, no concept of God to faith in Jesus in one jump. So we introduce Christianity little by little. This is why we keep announcing the gospel to our friends. Keep moving them on. We're going to finish in just a moment. And on your way out, I've got a little present for you today. You're welcome. It's a bookmark. And on this, you'll find what's called the Engel scale, which isn't anything special. It's by a man called James Engel. I desperately tried to make a joke about angels at this point, but I couldn't make it fit. Sorry. (laughs) And on here, it charts the journey that we all go through, from no awareness of God to a decision to follow Jesus. And you read this, and you might be able to read your friends just a little bit more. Where are they at? What kind of gospel do they need? On the other side, I'm not going to show you just yet. Don't look through there. On the other side is a tool for the most evangelistic thing you can do. Before I give away the ending, let me ask you a question. How do you become a Christian? How does anyone become a Christian? How do you become convinced of the risen Jesus and his lordship over our lives? The answer is the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit that brings us to faith. The revivalist and hymn writer Charles Wesley wrote this of his own conversion. The Spirit of God strove with my own spirit, till by degrees he chased away the darkness of my unbelief. The Spirit chased away his unbelief. I found myself convinced I knew not how, nor when, and immediately fell to prayer. Evangelism is an act of the Spirit, and we must engage with him accordingly. But so the most evangelistic thing you can do is to pray, is to ask the Spirit, move in that person's life. 
George Muller, the 19th century uh, philanthropist, um, famed for his work with orphans, was known to pray every day for eight specific friends that they would know Jesus. And one by one, they became Christians, apart from one, until George Muller's funeral. And as they lowered him into the ground, his friend reportedly fell to his knees and gave his life to Jesus through prayer. On your bookmark, you'll find space, not just eight, but ten names. Ten names. Ten people who you want to know Jesus. Take this home. Put it in your Bible and pray. Pray. Simple. God, open Dave's eyes. Open Janet's eyes. Would they believe in you? If, like me though, you probably would have struggled to find ten names... We talked about this in our home group, and we came up with a thing called Hobby Night, which please, anyone find a better name for. But it basically means go and get a hobby. Go and make friends. So that we can learn what gospel people want to know and who to pray for. And as you pray, your faith will rise. And I bet you'll see increased opportunity to share about Jesus. As you give your heart to friends in prayer so the Spirit will reveal to you what aspect of his gospel they need to hear. And as we daily pray for our friends, so our Father will call his sons and daughters home. Paul was a man of purpose, persistence, and a people, but only because Jesus was first. Jesus' great purpose is to win hearts to himself. Jesus has persisted from creation to the cross, from the grave to today. And Jesus has many in this city who are his people. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing something together in just a moment. And then we'll finish. Just let me pray. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, thank you for the welcome you've offered us. Thank you that you sent your spirit into our hearts that we might know you. I pray, give us boldness. Boldness just to, to pray these prayers, to ask on behalf of our friends that they might know you too. Give us boldness too to use those opportunities that you will raise to speak about you, to follow Ali Reza's example. Lord, give us confidence that this is your work and you will complete it. Hallelujah. Amen.